together. So if you want to know the point of what we're going to talk about this morning and you want to know the point of Revelation itself, this is how it fits into the four-part story. This is what I want to show you. This is what I'd love for you to take in and be transformed by. The four-part story teaches us that God always finishes what he starts. You cannot understand the book of Revelation without understanding Genesis and everything in between. So what I hope you get is that you see that God always finishes what he starts. That's what we're going to look at today in Revelation chapter 1 and for the next few weeks. So listen to this. And this is a beautiful passage. And I'll probably ask you to do this when we get to the point in the sermon, if I remember, or if the Holy Spirit prompts me to do something else. If you just need to close your eyes and take this in, feel free to do it. It's a magnificent, magnificent piece. Listen, listen to this. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne, before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, and the kingdom and the patient and endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of, the, of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. <clears throat> from, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen those that are, and those that are to take place after this. 
As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let's pray. Lord, as we go into looking at this book and working our way through several chapters of it over the next few weeks together, uh, we ask that you would impress upon us uh, a deeper sense of your majesty, a greater sense of your glory, uh, a more completeness and a more complete sense of what you have accomplished, Jesus. And that Holy Spirit Help us to understand more about your work in the world and how you are taking the significance of Jesus and working that in all four corners of the earth to bring about redemption and salvation, to comfort your people, to encourage your people that we all might bow down and worship. So Lord, Lord, have your way with us. Fill us with truth. Fill us with understanding. Fill us with good news today that we might live in light of that good news. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever wondered what you were going to watch and started watching trailers to figure out what you wanted to watch and 45 minutes later you just realized you'd just been watching trailers? You realize you never picked anything. You just kept watching trailers. Ever happened to you? You know, have you ever gone to see a, a, a movie and for some reason they have 20 plus minutes of trailers before the actual movie? And there's just enough time in between each trailer that you can look at the person you're with and be like, There's just enough time to figure out if you like that one, if you didn't. You might even say, hey, uh, let's, let's make sure we remember that one. We want to go see that one. You see, the the purpose of trailers is to catch your attention, right? It's to captivate you. It's to um, get a hook in you so that you're interested in going to watch the whole thing. Well, I want you to know that Revelation 1, this chapter I just read for you, is a trailer to the whole book. So if you get Revelation 1 and you understand something of what's going on in Revelation 1, it's just the trailer in which the other chapters of the book, the rest of the book, explain and show in greater detail. So if Revelation 1 hooked you at all, and perhaps by the end of this message it might a little bit more, we'll see, who knows what God has, but hopefully it will excite you and encourage you as we come back the next few weeks and think about the rest of the book. Because remember the point, as we're on the home stretch of our study of the Bible, God always finishes what he starts. So let's think about Revelation 1 together. Here are three questions we're gonna try to answer today. Question number one is, what is this book about? Question two, how does it impact my life? How does it impact us? How does it impact you and me? And third, what is the big reveal? What's the big reveal? Let's work our way through these questions. The first one, what is this book about? Well, you got something of what this book is about through these verses in chapter one. You got the idea that there's this guy named John. It is the apostle John. What you might not know is he's in his 90s. 
What the text also tells you is that he is on this island called Patmos. It's about the same size as Nag's head on the Outer Banks. And he's there because apparently he has been deemed an enemy of the state. Because he believes in Jesus and has been talking about Jesus and the reality that Jesus is actually alive and king. And John is writing this book to a bunch of churches. Did you notice that in verse 4? Verse 20 tells you that as well, if it didn't make sense in verse 4. He explicitly says that he has, to, he has to write down what he sees and send it to the churches. It means that this book is for us. It's written to those that are following the Lord. And here's what's going on. There is tons of persecution that's happening in the first century as John writes this. You've heard this before. There's a lot of persecution in the first century and following. And I mean significant persecution. I mean like there were times in which God's people were hunted down and killed. And when I say hunted down and killed, I mean in pretty extreme ways. When persecution got really bad in the first century and after, here are some ways that you might die if you were a follower of Jesus. Someone might tie your arms to a horse and your legs to another horse, whip both horses, and the horse would rip you apart. You could also get thrown into a lion's den and say, hey, now's your day. You think you're tough? Why don't you fight a lion? And the lion's pretty hungry. Not a good way to die, I wouldn't think. All because you believe in Jesus? There are even stories about Nero, which you know, who reigned in the Roman Empire in the 60s. And he loved to um, decapitate Christians, roll their heads in tar, light them on fire, and put those as pendants in his garden. There are also records of people having a, some, somehow a hole drilled into their skull and hot molten lead poured into their skull, into that hole. John is writing this book to people who were experiencing persecution. That kind of persecution. And he's writing to them because he wants to encourage them. He wants to help them understand. You see, what is this book about? Well, look at verse 19, because he tells you. He writes about things that have happened, he writes about things that are happening, and he writes about things that will happen. So if you've been told that this book is written about everything in the past, that's not what John says in verse 19. If you are told that this book is about everything in the future, that's not what John says in, chapter, in verse 19 of chapter 1. As a matter of fact, he says that he writes about the past, the present, and the future, and there seems to be a little bit more emphasis on what is going on in the present. Do you notice verse 1? I'm writing you about things that will shortly take place. As if to say, hey, hey, let me tell you what's going to go on. What has happened, what's going to happen in the future, and what's going on right now, and what will shortly take place. Again, if you've been told that it's all past or all future, I'm really sorry. But that's what the book is about, past, present, and future. How does this book impact me, you, us? Look at verse 3. This book is meant to be a blessing. 
Did you see that? Two times in verse three. God wants to bless his people. Now again, as a quick sidebar, if you have been taught that this is a book in which the way to interpret it is like trying to crack a code. And the way that you try to crack the code is by looking at current events and trying to map on biblical prophecy to those current events in which predominantly you're trying to look for trigger points or historical clues by which you can tell or predict or think that you know when Jesus will return because you've mapped out current events onto biblical prophecy that, and that largely centered around the nation of Israel. And your great hope is that you might escape. I'm really, really sorry. And if that understanding of Revelation has framed your entire life with Jesus such that you think about the future and are fearful, so that you think about the future and you are pessimistic, so that if you, if you think about the future and you think things are just gonna get worse and worse and worse until Jesus swoops in at the last minute and, and we, we escape somehow and go somewhere and get raptured out of here, if your whole Christian experience and life with God has been framed in that way and it's put you on that kind of trajectory, I'm really, really sorry. I really am. Because you've just fallen trapped to what has become super common in our country. You haven't really understood the book at all. If what John wrote in all of these chapters and if the interpretation of it meant nothing for his original audience, you have every reason to be skeptical about that view. If John's writing of chapter one and two all the way to 21 and 22, if this book had no relevance to those who are persecuted by all kinds of people that hated Jesus in the first century, if, this, if the purpose of this book had no significance for his original audience? You ought to really be skeptical about that view. Because God has written this book to be a blessing to his people. Did you see it? Look at verse three. Blessed are those who read the book. Blessed are those who hear the reading of the book. People are blessed by hearing the book and following it and living into it. This book is not meant to scare God's people. It's not meant to give them no hope. It's not meant to just, bottom line, hope that you escape and zoom up out of here in the sky. The book is written to be a blessing. That's what God says. So how this impacts you, how this impacts me, how this impacts us, is to study this book, is to know God's blessing. 
is that we understand more and more and more about God's presence with us, about the fact that he is actually sovereign and in control of the world, the reality that evil can't even hold a candle to our God, the reality that evil is real but it never ever gets the last word, the fact that Jesus is actually accomplished and reigning and doing something. This book is meant to be a blessing so that we would know God's presence, we would understand his word, and we would know that he is with us. God always finishes what he starts. And it is a blessing to know that and to receive that and to live in light of that truth. Well, that leads us to the third question. Uh, what's the big reveal? What's the big reveal of this chapter? What's the big reveal of this trailer? What's the big reveal of this whole movie? What is it? Well, John billboards it for us with verse one. Look at the first phrase. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Billboarded right there. The purpose of this book is to reveal Jesus. It is to show him. It is to explain him. It is so that we might understand him. It is so that we, in a deeper and more graphic and pictorial way, understand and be amazed by him. This book is not to talk about how powerful evil is and how you should be scared. This book is to communicate how amazing Jesus is and how you can trust everything about him, even your life, even your fear, even your uncertainty, that he is so lovely and so lovable that you could see him in all of his glory and not just love him, but love him by worshiping him and entrusting him. The big reveal is Jesus. And it's not just that John billboards this for us with the first phrase of the first verse of the first chapter so that we wouldn't have no mistake about the purpose of this book. No mistake, and we wouldn't be confused about what John's trying to do. He just tells us straight from the get-go, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is what I'm doing. That's what he's saying. I want to reveal Jesus to you. And John doesn't just put it in billboard form. This whole chapter, he is bombarding us with Jesus. He is bombarding us, overwhelming us with Christ. And I want to try to show that to you. Here's a summary. Look at verse 5 and 6 and 7. This is what John says. This Jesus that I'm trying to reveal to you, verse 1, phrase 1, chapter 1. This Jesus is the true and faithful witness. There have been many who have witnessed to, the, to Jesus of the scriptures. I'm one of them, but I am by no means perfect, not even close. But Jesus, Jesus is the true and faithful witness. He is the one in which if you look to him and understand him, you will understand God. That in God there is no unchrist likeness at all. So to understand Christ and to understand who he is is to understand God the Father. 
To understand Christ is to hear and see and have a witness to the living God. So anytime you read the Gospels and anytime you read the Bible and anytime you're thinking about Jesus, Jesus has come to reveal the Father. And he's also the firstborn. Did you notice that? Firstborn from the dead. It's not so much saying that Jesus is the person who rose from the dead, although that's profoundly true. But when it says that he is the firstborn from the dead, what John is communicating is that he is the first one that has conquered death. And the reason why he's the firstborn is because there are a lot of people who are coming after him. Not chasing him, I mean following in his steps. Because he has conquered death, all those that believe in him and have entrusted their lives to him, we too will defeat death. Because our Christ has done it. So you find yourself in persecution and you find yourself in difficult times. John starts bombarding you with, do you realize who Jesus is? He is a witness to all that is true and holy. He is a witness to God and you can trust him and he's conquered death. More than that, he is the king of kings. That's the next phrase. He rules over everyone. He rules over everything. Not only that, but he has loved us with his own blood. Did you notice that? He loved us, and it's in the present tense. So that means if you and I were to go to the throne of God right now and say, Jesus, do you love me? He would say, yes, yes, I love you. Right now, present tense. You're facing persecution and hardship and trial, and you wonder, does God love you? The answer is yes. And he has freed you. His whole purpose in coming was not simply to pay the penalty that we deserve. It was to free us so that we would live as free human beings, honoring God, serving him, depending upon him for everything. That's true freedom. True freedom is, is living in a right relationship with God. That's freedom. Freedom is not doing whatever we want whenever we want. Freedom is having the right restraints. It's having the right relationship to God. And that Jesus did all of this to make us a kingdom and priests to our God. So that in bringing us to God, we literally have access to the throne of God. You literally have access to God. He hears you. He sees you. He loves you. You can talk to him. You can hear from him. In the midst of hardship and trial, Jesus has made you part of his kingdom. He's made you a priest, meaning you have access to the Father himself. You don't have to go through any other human being to get to God. You go through Jesus, and you're there. And not only that, but he is coming again. Here's a summary. This is what Jesus is saying. This is what John is saying about Jesus. He's the firstborn. He's a faithful witness. He's king of kings. He's building a kingdom, and he's coming again. And that's just a summary. If you look at what's next, look down at verses 11 through 16. Because this tells you what Jesus is actually like. So John, 
hears this voice, something yelling, if you will, or at least loud enough to where he wants to turn around and hear what's going on. It catches his attention. So he hears this voice, and he turns around to see the voice, and this is what he sees. In verses 11 and following, he gives a, a, a description. And it's not exactly what Jesus looks like. It's describing what Jesus is like. Remember, Revelation is not a code book. It is an impressionistic painting. It, it, is, it is meant to fire up your imagination and fire up my imagination with who Jesus really is. It's taking truth and putting it in pictorial form so you can have images that, that get at you in a deep way so that you look at this and think about these images and begin to let your imagination run wild and you begin to think about and meditate on who Jesus is. And John says this is what Jesus is like. He's like the Son of Man. He's borrowing language from a long time ago in the Old Testament to communicate and convey that Jesus is a majestic being, transcendently majestic. He has this robe and he has these royal attire because he is an incredible, majestic being. And his hair is like white. It's to communicate wisdom. That Jesus is the most, he is wisdom itself. Wisdom in human form. Not only that, but his eyes are like fire. Meaning that his eyes are communicating to us holiness and purity. Meaning that he sees you. He really, really sees you. He sees everything about you. And yes, his eyes are burning with purity and burning with holiness. But all of that is for my good and your good. He sees us for who we really are. Not what we pretend, not what we project, but who we really are. And not only that, out of his mouth comes a sword, a two-edged sword, it's truth. Jesus never lies. He never tells you anything that isn't true. He's constantly telling you truth. And his voice is like the rush of mighty waters. That when he speaks, things happen. When he is in a storm and speaks, the storm goes away. He is the one that has all authority and power. And so when he speaks, we can't help but be overwhelmed with what he says. If we can just grasp a bit of what he's saying and what he means. And his face, his face is like the shining sun at noonday. To be in his presence is to find warmth, is to find life, is to find strength itself. Beloved, in the midst of hardship and living in a broken world, in the midst of facing persecution, John is bombarding us with Jesus to say, but do you remember who he is? Do you remember what he's like? He is the majestic God. He is king of kings. He is holy. He is powerful. He speaks truth. He sees you. His face is radiant and glorious and inviting just like the sun in which you get to bask in the sun, not today, 
But when the sun's out, and you walk out in the sun and you feel the sun on your face and your body, you feel the warmth and the life. John is saying that's who Jesus is for you and me. Then it continues. And this is how far John goes in this big reveal. He doesn't just billboard it. He doesn't just summarize it in quick hits in verse five, six, and seven. He doesn't just hit us with, this is what Jesus is like. This is who he is, is his character. He actually tries to communicate that life itself is dependent upon him. Look at what happens in verse 17. He gets, this, he gets this glimpse of Jesus, a glimpse of another world. And then he falls down as though he was dead. You see that? He gets this amazing imagery that communicates all that Jesus is, and he falls down as though he's dead because he's met Jesus. He's got a glimpse of Jesus. He falls down as though he's dead because he's completely undone. To be in the presence of God is to understand, oh, I am finite. Sometimes I wonder if one of the greatest negative effects of our rebellion against God is the fact that we don't sense our mortality. That we just are able to live with this sense of, I don't want to think about that. I don't want to think about my mortality. I don't want to think about being dependent. I like to think about being independent. I like to not think about my death. I like to not think about the end. But friends, when you come face to face with the living God and all that he is and his majesty and his glory and his love and his face beaming with warmth and life, we are absolutely undone because we have a sense that he is this incredible creator and that we are this creature that is finite and weak and dependent, utterly dependent. And John falls down as though he were dead. And guess what happens? Did you see it? This amazing figure reaches down and touches John's shoulder. And then says these words, don't be afraid. How about that? John, don't be afraid. John, have you forgotten that I am the first and the last? Now, John, I'm the one that was there in creation. Matter of fact, I'm the uncreated being. I was the first and I'm the last. Everything will find its way to its proper conclusion because of me. Nothing is out of line, nothing is out of sort. Nothing catches me by surprise. I'm the first, I'm the last. John, have you forgotten that I died? Have you forgotten, John? Because that's what Jesus goes to next. I died and I rose again and now I'm alive forevermore. Matter of fact, John, I have the keys, meaning I have all authority to death itself and Hades. I'm the one who's in control over all these things. And John, 
I'm coming again. I'm coming again. It's as if we are supposed to be taken up with Jesus and understand, oh yeah, I am absolutely dependent upon you. And I have to be reminded over and over again because it's so easy for me to get caught up in what I think is going on in my life and what I think is happening in the world and the things that I wish were different in my life and I wish were different in the world and I forgot to factor Jesus in to all of that so that in thinking about him and how glorious and amazing and powerful he is, I have to remind myself of the little things that aren't so little. Did Jesus die for me? Did he rise from the dead for me? Is he now alive forevermore? Is he the true alpha and omega? Is he the real beginning and end? So that one day everything will work the way that it's supposed to because our God is in charge? Have I forgotten that whenever I see wickedness and corruption and poison running amok in the world, have I forgotten how much I participate in that? And if I've forgotten that Jesus is in charge of all of that, then he can overrule it, he can wipe it out, he can work it for good. Have I forgotten that? I don't know about you, but I do. I do forget that. I do forget those little things that aren't so little. I do forget the reality that Jesus is working all things, that he will glorify himself, that he'll return in one day. All things will be made new. You see, John is giving us all these images because he's trying to communicate how compelling Jesus is. You know, there's so many things. When you wrestle with these descriptions and think about these images, there's so many things that you wouldn't think would fit together. But in Jesus, they do. And they're absolutely stunning and beautiful. Here is the one who is the beginning and the end. He is the alpha and omega. He is the uncreated. He is the divine being. He is full of unparalleled majesty. And he lives in real time and space. How about that? Here is this unbelievable being that has these eyes that are pure and holy. And what does he see? He sees John exiled on an island. And he sees the church going through persecution. This description of Jesus has a sword coming out of his mouth and this voice of rushing mighty waters. He's this incredible being. And yet, what words does he speak? Comfort. Don't be afraid, John. Tell the churches not to be afraid. Tell all of my people not to be afraid. This being has the keys of death itself, and yet he wants to be known as Redeemer and Savior. He wants the world to know of his power and his beauty and his glory. He wants the world to know of redemption through him. This sovereign being, at the same time, desires relationship. This infinite majesty, at the same time, sees everything and is aware of every little detail. 
His exalted status doesn't remove him from us so he doesn't know what's going on with us. He knows it all. And all of these perfections are all used for the purpose of redemption, saving, redeeming. Beloved, that's what brings us to the table.